This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome to Erased. I'm Lisa Myers Johnson, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Colette Bowers-Zinn. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. We are talking today, episode number one, about the Black Bat Movement. We felt very strongly about this being our first topic for a lot of of reasons. Um, Because Black student lives matter. They matter. But you know what? I also really feel like for the first time... You know, since Brown v. Board and the creation of private schools, for the first time, we're actually at a tipping point of possible, meaningful, lasting change in a way that we're not. We've never been. And we have, I think, the Black App movement largely to thank for that. Amen. So we want to talk about it. We want to shine a light on it. You know, it was started a few months ago by students and alum as an anonymous platform, really just to share those, those sad and painful covert and overt racist experiences that that are even deeply deeper sad and painful because they are almost verbatim the same experiences we were having year after in year independent schools after year almost well more than 25 years ago right, right which is exactly my point and i feel like now for the first time this movement has we can't look away you know, people see it They now. are not going to let us look away, <laughs> and I am here for it. Absolutely. So the experiences describe everything from, you know, racial slurs, comments about hair and skin, feeling singled out, feeling just mistreated because of race and more. It's, it's hard to read. It's painful to read. I had to actually stop reading the one for our school. I just couldn't do it anymore. And obviously, it's traumatic to experience, but what? a time, the bravery of these people posting and sharing, even if it is anonymous, I don't care if it's anonymous, to just put it all out there and to have it catapult this conversation and this expectation of, okay, now what? Now you know. Now you know. You can't say you don't know. What are we going to do about it? And that's what I love. And I feel like that's where we are right now, this whole question of where does this go? So for our listeners who aren't aware, there's a movement on Instagram currently that we are terming the Black App Movement, uh, where alumni and current students of color at a plethora of independent schools throughout the country. I tried to count today. It was over 80. Right. Just when you put in Black App. Are posting their experiences anonymously in these independent schools. And it ranges, as Lisa said, everything from the N-word being used in the hallways to the N-word being used in the curriculum to the N-word being used by faculty and administrators while engaging in the curriculum to um, LGBTQ issues on on some platforms. Yeah, it's definitely spreading. It's spreading into all kinds of other areas of airing, all kinds of just horrific treatment, right? So here we are. Here we are. Let's talk about it. And so we're going to talk about that today. And we have a guest with us who's going to shed some light. She's actually in the independent school system and working um, 
hard to, she was working hard before this, but now she's really working hard <laughs> to address a lot of these issues. And, and we invited her because I think it's really important that we shine a light on those people who are doing the work. And those institutions that are committed to doing the work and to hiring people who are committed to doing the work so that we, as people of color in these schools, no longer feel erased. Absolutely. So today we have with us Janine Hancock-Jones. She is Harvard Westlake's first director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in addition to this role, she also serves as associate director of admission. Prior to joining Harvard Westlake, Janine worked as a management side labor and employment lawyer at several large law firms and also taught several classes at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. She also formerly served as the senior advisor and deputy legal counsel to former Ohio Governor Ted Strickland. Welcome, Janine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. So, you know, we're talking about the what we're calling the Black Act movement, the Instagram movement, and those kids and students and alum as well. They're not feeling any race anymore, right? This is all about amplifying and sharing some horrible experiences. Um, when did you first hear about Black Act? Well, for my school... I saw it the day after it was hosted. Um, our school was probably a month or so after the they started on the East Coast. And I think we were probably maybe the fourth or fifth school in L.A. Yeah. to have an account. So I was ready for it. Yeah. I was waiting for it. I know that our students experience some of the same things that I was reading on the other accounts. Yeah. Um, so I probably first noticed it. It may have gone up at, mm, towards the end of June, and I probably saw it the day after it went up. And what do you think about it? I'm proud of our kids. Yeah. Like, I'm incredibly proud of our kids for putting it up. I think that our students have done it in, and I told them this yesterday, actually, I, I think they've done it in an incredibly professional way. I think they've been very mature about the way that they've been posting these um accounts mm -hmm. of very real and very traumatic experiences that they had on our campus. Yeah. I love that you're proud of them, right? Absolutely. Because I know there are some, some of your peers in some of these schools who are quite on the defensive and they're not saying that. And I think that just really speaks to the nuance of why you are sitting right here <laughs> <laughs> and why we really see what you're doing um, as a great example. For other schools. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, too, because most of these stories are not new. If you've been listening to our students, not at. Nope, they're not. We new. all we all have experiences. <laughs> so it's yeah. been, you know, so I think that it's probably new to some people. It is. But it's not new to me. So I'm one of the leaders of our middle school Black Affinity Group. And our students share these stories in our Black Affinity Group space all the time. Um, I think our students have been vocalizing what's, what their experiences have been. So at our school, we do what's called brown bag lunches. Mm -hmm. And our students from our affinity groups will share their experiences with faculty and staff members during these brown bag lunches. And they've told some of these exact same stories in the brown bag lunches that mm -hmm. have happened over the past three years. So if our faculty and staff members were listening to the stories, they would hear these themes. 
Um, and so I'm incredibly proud of them. And um, yeah, they're not new. So tell us more about those lunches. Mm -hmm. Like what, what's the purpose of them? How did they start? And because I think it's really interesting that that's an opportunity for your faculty and staff to be listening. Yeah. And there's so many schools right now who I'm hearing say, well, you know, these posts are from alum. That was, we, we've changed. Totally dismissing <laughs> yeah. any possibility of it happening just yesterday. Um, so tell me about that as being a vehicle to hear from your students. Well, so we've been doing these brown bag lunches and they're on a wide variety of topics. They're not always um, hosted by our student affinity groups um, or our student affinity groups are always not aren't always the feature of the brown bag lunches, but we'll host them on a variety of DEI topics, diversity, equity, and inclusion topics. But every year we have at least one or two of our affinity groups come and speak to our faculty members. Um, but they're current. These are current students. And um, one of our, but our group was, our alums are recent grads. They're the class of 2019. Mm -hmm. So you can't really say that it was, you know, 10 years ago. Now, there are stories on the account that were from 10 or 15 years ago. But we also have current stories that are posted we on the account. That's what talking about before, the difficult, the very difficult part of this for a lot of people, and especially uh, me, is that. These are stories that could be verbatim experiences that we had mm -hmm. right, when we were in independent schools growing up. And I'm an alum of Harvard-Westlake, and it is near and dear. So I want to talk about taking it to the work that you're doing currently um, in reaction, in part, to the Blackout movement, but mostly because Harvard-Westlake is committed to supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion in their community. And as an alum, received an amazing communication from uh, President Rick Commons mm -hmm. about work that he's collaborated with you and a bunch of other people on. So yeah. speak on it. Yeah, absolutely. So we, I, I appreciate you that you said we started this work before everything happened this summer. We are, have admittedly accelerated our work, and I think rightfully so. So we, three years ago, this is 2020, so in 2017, our Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion started. So we're entering into our fourth year. So we're in toddlerdom with the DEI work in a formal way at Harvard-Westlake. And we have really tried to approach this work from an educational perspective. We've also tried to approach it from a systemic perspective, which I think is directly relevant to the piece of it that is anti-racism right now, which is we're not going to just try to throw programs at this. We're not just going to try to throw a listening session at this. Um, we are really thinking about the ways in which we as an institution perpetuate systemic racism through our policies and our practices and our procedures. And so it's not just about let's bring in more black and brown kids. Let's bring in more students from underrepresented populations. It really is thinking about what is the experience and how are we perpetuating systemic racism? Let me ask you a foundational question. Um, to be able to even enter into this work of examining systemic, et cetera, racism. What work did you guys have to do as the adults in the building to be able to do this work, meaning emotionally engage in the work rather than go down the route of defensiveness? 
Well, I, I would like to think that we're doing a pretty good job at that, but I will be candid with you. We're not where we need to be with this. We still have people in our community who are defensive about this. And so we do not have 100% agreement that we should be focused on anti-racism. So there's that as a piece of it. So it does take courage on the part of President Commons to even put something like this out there, because you all know that there are people out there who don't believe that systemic racism even exists. So we have to have that conversation. Well, looking at the alumni group on Facebook Mm -hmm. post uh, President Commons letter and the outlining of the DEI efforts, even alumni saying doesn't exist. This is leftist, liberalist nonsense. Well, and one approach that we've taken that I think is the right approach is that we don't take a political approach to this, even if people want to invite us into a political conversation, that this is education. Mm -hmm. And we know that research shows that a diverse, equitable and inclusive environment benefits all students, 100 percent of our student population. And when people want to accuse us of having some liberal agenda because we want to create an inclusive environment, because we want to be diverse, because we want to be equitable. I always ask a lot of questions. And let's let's remove politics from this from the equation for the purposes of this conversation. I'm happy to have a political conversation, but let's be clear about the fact that we're talking about politics. Mm. If we want to talk about economic policy, Whatever, we can have that conversation. But when we are talking about the experience of our students and when we're talking about that equal sense of belonging, it's in our mission statement. Yeah. In 2014, Harvard-Westlake changed its mission statement. And so it starts, Harvard-Westlake strives to be a diverse and inclusive community, united by the joyful pursuit of educational excellence. And it goes on. But I always stop at excellence. I don't stop at diverse and inclusive because in order to be truly excellent in 2020 and beyond, You have to be diverse. You have to be equitable. You have to be inclusive. And you have to think about where we are at this moment in this country. We are not the same institution. We're we're not even the same country that we were 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. We're not the same country that we were 20 years ago. Four years ago. Exactly. Right. Well, yes. Four years ago as well. Last week. <laughs> no. All right. I'll, I'll say six months ago. Yeah. Easily. Right. Like, yeah. Because yeah. we've had a lot of people that have woken up all yeah. of a sudden and they're now interested yep. in this topic. And so we had a so I all day today we had a new faculty and staff cultural competency training and we go back tomorrow and have another entire day of that and so this is our fourth time doing that so for the past three years we've had a two-day training we've dedicated two full days to DEI training for our new faculty and staff and our diversity council that is um newly or it's reconfigured we had a diversity council before but we have a new diversity council members of the diversity council are also participating in this two-day dei training and so the point of that work is to level up our skill set because we see the work of diversity equity and inclusion as a set of skills that we have to develop and so our our facilitator today made the point that your identity does not equal a skill set 
And so you may be African-American, you may be a member of the LGBTQ plus community, but that doesn't mean that you have the skill set to engage in the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I attribute it completely to Dr. Jones, but he he talks about that every year with our faculty and staff. And it's really critically important that we yeah. see this as a skill set. Whether you identify as a person of color, a person, a, a member of the LGBTQ plus community, this is a set of skills that we have to prepare our students for in order for them to go out there and be um, members of society that yeah. we can be proud of. I love that you're so candid about the fact that there's still people in the community who have not come along, right? And that, that to me, is, that's human nature. I also think it speaks to the fact that, number one, this is a continuous, ongoing, evolutionary thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a living, breathing thing that you don't fix overnight, first of all. Um, but the other thing is, I think it's really powerful that, you know, I naively thought this work was not rocket science. Mm. Just a year or so ago, I thought, oh, it's not rocket science. And I have I have come to realize it is not only rocket science. <laughs> I mean, I used to think, you know, it's not like you're a lawyer or a doctor, although you are, but you don't have to necessarily be, you know, go through a, a a training program, what have you, to do this. And yet it is harder, I think, because of that human element. Absolutely. And and you can't gift this to someone to do the work. Yeah. And so I guess my question is, going back to what Colette asked, how do you help move those people along? Like, yeah. what does it take for you to just continually nudge, continually live in a space of being uncomfortable? Um, of challenging norms, of being maybe not the popular voice or the one that people want to hear or deal with. How do you how do you manage that? And how important do you think that is to the work you're doing? Important question. And I, I want you to answer, but I want to push back on what you just said mm -hmm. for a second. It's not rocket science. No, it's not. I rocket agree science. with it's it's not rocket science, but you just said it actually is. Well, from the perspective of it, it is difficult because you have the human Right, piece but of that's it. not the work. That's not the concepts. That's not diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's getting people to engage. That's the psychology of it. Right. And that is not the actual work itself. But I do think it's so crucial to understanding where someone is, someone who's going to be in front of your child teaching them. Right. One hundred. Right. So and, and that's a to me, it's a gift that I can't force them to get like and I want them to get it because I've seen like when you when you're with someone and you see that light bulb go off. I mean, it's great. It is great. And it's something that they can't turn away from. So that's what I'm speaking. I'm just speaking to the human piece right. of it. Right. And the I fact just that wanted to separate them out because people will latch on to the. You know. This, yeah, the idea that it is hard, it is right. rocket science, right. it is, it's not. It's the what do you think, Janine? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, um, I actually, when I was talking to our faculty and staff earlier today, I was telling them that there's no playbook for this work. Yeah. And if anybody, there's no silver bullet. And if anybody tells you that there is, they either haven't tried to do the work themselves yeah. um, or they're just naive in how difficult it really is. Yeah. And so I guess if I had to choose, um, <laughs> you don't it have being to choose. or not, just... 
But yeah, I would, you I do. would say Team Lisa, or Team Colette. Right. I know. So, in this one question, <laughs> I would say I have to be Team Lisa on this because I do think it's enormously complicated. You are really talking about that human element. You are talking about deeply held beliefs that people have grown up with, mm-hmm. and you're trying to get them to shift their framework and have them think about things a little differently. Mm-hmm. And these are beliefs that their parents instilled. In them, and uh, this is the good. We're all good people, right? Like I, I don't see color and, and racist, right? Like I don't <laughs> see color, but it's really the the non-racist versus the anti-racist. So I'm not even talking Correct. about racists here, and right? That is a big distinction. It the is non-racist versus the anti-racist. It is, and so I think that what you know, people and people tend to think about racist as or white supremacists as you know the the burning crosses right. and the hood and yeah. the neo-Nazis and things like. That. That, but where I think the conversation is moving in a in a good way is that we are all racists in a certain way. Absolutely. Um, and so that we need to get comfortable with that, or at least we have perpetuated a system of racism. And so we need to think about it outside of the context of the individual and not just go look looking for those card carrying members of the KKK. Correct. And that we can be non-racist. But we need to shift into anti-racism and we have an anti-racist. We mm-hmm. have to be active in our efforts to dismantle systemic racism from all levels, whether it's the National Equity Project has a really great visual for explaining this where there are overlapping lenses. And you think about the four different categories of systemic racism. It's the individual, the interpersonal, the institutional and the structural. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about the interplay between all four of those and how they overlap to create this system of racism. So it's not just about the member of the KKK, because quite honestly, I'm okay with saying that person cannot be a member of the Harvard-Westlake community. And I think Rick Commons would go on record saying, if you are a member of the KKK, you're not welcome here. In fact, two years ago after Charlottesville, may have even been three years ago now, he, in his opening convocation, denounced white supremacy. And that was um, at the time, if you will recall, that was actually a big deal for yeah. someone to come out and say that, which is very strange to even think of how far we've come just in a few years. Right. For the record, we are all agreeing that it is complex. I am just saying <laughs> it is not. Somebody's competitive. <laughs> look, it is not rocket science. Yeah. That things need to be diverse, equitable and inclusive. And wrapping your brain around that notion is not rocket science. Well, and I don't think that's where the argument usually lies, right? Yeah. Like for us, I think that everybody who signs on to become a member of our community says we believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. The devil is in the details. Yeah, It's in the application yep. of these principles and these values. And so they will sign on and say, I believe in the mission of diversity and inclusion. They will say anything to sign on to. There no, are but those folks too. There's, but it's both. It is. It, it is. is both. I'm, I'm not here to sugarcoat, s- to all hold hands <laughs> and sing kumbaya and say that everyone knowingly buys into those notions. Yes. Or we wouldn't be here. Ah. We wouldn't be here. No, but I think her point, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, the devil's in the details, right? In your interpretation and your experience, you bring that to the table when you're there to work, you know, do the do the work, quote unquote. And your interpretation and understanding of that is probably very different from someone else's. 
Well, and I think this goes back to a question you asked me before, but I think how do you handle the people in your community who are vocally disagreeing with the efforts that you are undertaking? And the way that it shows up for me is that, again, most people say we believe in diversity, equity and inclusion, but Mm -hmm. and it's everything after the but that you have to really talk about. And I'm a huge fan of calling people in. Mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of call out culture. I don't believe in shame, blame or guilt because I just think those are useless. Um, And so if we are bringing people in, you give them an opportunity. We are an educational institution. Our role is to educate. And so if we spend the time there and somebody still doesn't come along, at some point they have a decision to make Yeah, because our board of trustees is on board with our DEI commitments and our anti-racism plan. Our senior leadership is on board with our DEI commitments and our plan for anti-racism. And I'm willing to have conversations and bring people in. But it's only going to go to a certain point. Right. Is the school willing to make them make that decision? I'm sorry, willing to. So you're saying if they're not on board with all of those efforts, they have a decision to make. Is the school willing to step up and make people make that decision? I don't know. I mean, I think that's a I I don't know that I can really answer that question because it's a case by case situation. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes in and says we disagree with the approach that you're taking for anti-racism, I can't see us saying, well, you're no longer a welcome member of this community. Um, so, I meant in the extreme like cases in, yeah. where people are saying we don't believe in these efforts for diversity, equity and inclusion. I don't know. And, I mean, and, yeah. and very unfair question. It's not one that, that you have to yeah. answer. It was kind of rhetorical. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I can't say yes or no. I would have to see the the facts of the specific um, individuals and the families in order to say rightfully, yeah, you know, I rightfully. think you're more likely to get the non-black family to say, what about us? Or we feel left out or, you know, that whole thing. I think I think you're more likely to get that than an egregious example of how you don't support the DEI work at Harvard Westlake. And that to me is almost a discipline thing, maybe. Yeah, it just depends. Yeah. It depends on how it shows up. And uh, we're an independent school. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't have to be in the Harvard West. But I think community. you're playing softball. And so to say, like, it doesn't show up. It does show up. Look in the comment section of these black at posts, people that are rightfully not rightfully, but openly saying that they do not support diversity, equity and inclusion. I haven't seen that haven't from seen the that Harvard either. Westlake community. No, no, not the Harvard. I w- yeah. no, I was yeah. not. Oh, I was going to say I haven't Westlake. seen that. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, like, sitting here going and saying that that's that's harder to find. I disagree with. Um, well, again, I think at that point, then the school has. I would almost see it as. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I, th- I think. I think I agree with Janine. Case by case, situation by situation. I mean, what does that person mean? What does that mean? Is it is it is that blanket statement enough to be like, all right, peace? Or is it an opportunity to her point to bring them in and say, well, why? Right. And I'm not sitting here advocating for like there's the door. Right. But to I think that there's a level of. Innocence to this part of the conversation where we're saying that there aren't people that blatantly don't support. Um, that, that yes, there are. There are people who blatantly don't. I mean, that's it, what I'm saying. But, but but I was saying, I think it shows up at least. I, I feel like it has shown up 
from the very naive place of what about me? That whole like it's separating our community, it's dividing us, it's, you know, the whole naivety of just even understanding what it means. I think you just have people who are afraid and don't understand. And I think to her point, I think it's an opportunity for education. Hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, I think if you've got a family in there who's just going out of their way to scream from the highest levels, this is something we don't support, then obviously. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not the straight up, it's something that we don't support, but the, the, that's not racist. How can you attribute that to racism? What I, are you talking about? Well, I, I also think, though, that there's there's a really good um, Jay Smooth is a comedian. and He has a great video out there that talks about how to tell someone that something they said sounded racist. Um, and I think we get lost in the details of whether or not we label something as racist or not. Mm-hmm. And he does it in a comedic fashion. And so it's really, really funny. But. Actually, if you actually are racist, I don't want you to in my community. And so where I think we we have to be able to talk about what is the action and is the action inappropriate or not? And I think we get lost in the details of do I have to label this racism or not? How about I label it as inappropriate and unacceptable? This is not acceptable behavior in our community. We're not going to tolerate that. And have a discussion around that. But we are an educational institution. These are not fully formed, at least from the children's standpoint, from the student standpoint. These are not fully formed adults. I wholeheartedly agree with you there. I do agree with what you said earlier that um, we have an obligation to educate, not just to react. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about this. What I'm kind of figuring is the manifesto. Y'all's plan? I mean, every time I look at it, I'm like, I see something else that I missed before. It is so comprehensive. Tell us about it, first of all. Yes, tell us. And tell us what you're most most proud of. Oh, gosh. What am I most proud of? Um, I mean, at a high level, I'm just proud that we did it. Yeah. Because I'm not sure that people... Tell us what what is that you did. The anti-racism plan that Harvard-Westlake put out you know, at the end of July. Um, And so we were working on a lot of these things already. What does it include? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I really want it. It's so comprehensive and well done. I just want, I want to make sure you. I mean, it includes so many different aspects of the school. And I think the point that I was making earlier about this uh, racism being a system of oppression. And so we're not looking at it as just interactions between students on that individual and interpersonal level, but really thinking about it from a structural standpoint and thinking about it from an institutional standpoint. And so we have curriculum addressed in this plan. We have hired a company to come in and do a DEI curricular audit for us seven through 12. In addition to that, we have also made changes to some of our courses so that we have a more equitable and inclusive curriculum. So, for example, the easy targets are English and history, where in English class, we are making sure that we are not just reading texts written by white authors, white male authors. Mm white male dead authors, because that's usually the quote unquote canon. Mm -hmm. And so really making sure that we are diversifying the work that our students are reading because you're unintentionally sending messages when you just have works that are written by dead white male authors, that those are the only voices that matter. And so that's not in your um, explicit 
behavior. I'm sure some would argue with me that that is explicit behavior. But the implicit message that you are sending to your students is that the white male dead voice is the only voice that should be listened to. So thinking about that, thinking about not having a Eurocentric focus to your history curriculum. And so we've spent a lot of time over the past few years, so not just this summer, but really thinking about how are we teaching history? Are we teaching it from a westernized or um, a European perspective? Or are we really thinking about history as the entire world and from a global perspective? And so we've made some progress there that will is implemented for this fall. So starting on August 24th, when our 11th graders go back to school, their U.S. history course has been completely redesigned um, through a critical race theory lens. Um, through one of our newer teachers in the upper school history department. He's now going into his third year, but he's the team lead for um, U.S. history in 11th grade. So different things like that, but really also not stopping there, though. That's why this curricular audit is really important to think about because we are looking at it 7 through 12 in every single class. And so I think there's um, there's a tendency for schools to just look at it and, st- and as one class mm-hmm. and stop there, mm-hmm. right? If I change 11th grade history, then we're done. Mm-hmm. We don't have to look at anything else. Or if I throw a Black author into 8th grade English, then we're good. We don't have to talk about it anymore. And that's just not comprehensive enough. That's not understanding the system yes. of racism. So the plan looked at curriculum. We looked at curriculum. Admissions. Hiring. We looked at hiring. Um, we looked at well, you all know. Experience. Now I got to go back to it. So we're looking. We're thinking. We were thinking about student experience as well. Um, we are looking at discipline, right? So there's a movement afoot that's been afoot for a number of years, thinking about restorative justices practices, yes. right? And yes. that's also problematic. Like there's nothing that you can take off the shelf sure. and just dump into a community and say. This is it. You know, do this, <laughs> yeah. and by Problem 2021, mm-hmm. you will be free of systemic racism. Right. Like, that's just not, or any sort of oppression mm-hmm. at all for any marginalized community in, in, within your, um, within your school. So you really have to be intentional about what you are doing in your community and understanding your community. So that's why I'm really happy that we, I feel like it's a pretty comprehensive plan. It's amazing. Thinking about it, it really from a, from multiple angles. And the hiring thing, and I'll try not to get on a soapbox about hiring, but when you think about the way that a lot of our schools do hiring, they're not necessarily doing it in a systemic fashion. And so we now, I'm super proud that just three years ago, we went to an online employment application, which I know for people outside of the school context, that sounds like, what are you talking about? How do you not have an online <laughs> employment mm-hmm. application? But we didn't. We did. Um, we did um, job applications by email, just three years ago, and wow. sound, so now we have an online employment application where we're then able to track data. We're then able to go back and say, well, where did we get the? Where did we get this? Um, the pool of candidates for for this upper school history department position that was open, and then once you have the data, what do they say? You. Um, what, what matters you measure. Mm-hmm. Um, once we have the data, we're then going to be able to go back and say, okay, well, we're not, we're getting our pool of candidates from the same group. Mm-hmm. And so that's causing us to not be as diverse in our faculty and staff. And so we need to do something different. But you have to understand where your job candidates are coming from before you're able to even do anything about it. So quick last question, because we are running out of time, although we could stay here forever. Um, Do you have any advice for listeners 
in other schools who might be struggling to get their schools to embrace the type of work that you were doing at Harvard Wesley. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate giving advice just because I like to be more um, targeted when I give advice because I think it really does depend. I know that's the classic lawyer answer, but it really depends <laughs> on your community, right? And so really understanding what your students are feeling, what your faculty and staff and your parents are feeling. And so how do you get people to the point of caring what their students and faculty, et cetera, are experiencing as opposed to, and I don't mean that they're not caring yeah. human beings, yeah. but as opposed to being defensive that there are the possibilities that those constituencies aren't happy or well taken care of. I mean, I don't I honestly don't know how to answer that question because that if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be a billionaire because I, <laughs> you know, I, I think they do care. Um, I think it's how they express that they care. And so I think what you're dealing with right now is something that you said early, there, earlier. There's a lot of defensiveness. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fear that they are going to be called a racist. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fear. Um, and, and so for non-Black people or for white people, I hear when they're called a racist, there's nothing worse that could happen to them than be being called a racist. And well, I got a few things. Uh -oh. <laughs> so that's a different I show. I know. I've, <laughs> I've heard this from my white colleagues that they that is something that they fear. Yeah. And especially the, the, I understand the, that. The, the, the white colleagues who don't believe themselves to be racist. Right. They're very fearful of that. And they really I, I really think the overwhelming majority of the people, um, non-black people in our communities, the adults, are well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. And so I told our faculty and staff this morning, like, let's just give each other grace and space to make some mistakes. But like Ma Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better. Yeah. We do have to do better. What advice would you have for parents who want to help their schools push this along? And how can those parents better support their DEI directors in their schools? Well, you know, and I, I think that what's most important is that parents are vocal, yeah. um, that you're not quiet about this. I think there is, you have to be strategic yeah. about it. And I definitely think there is a way to go about it where people will just naturally, human nature, just shut down and not listen to you. And so that's more kind of the psychology of how you approach people. But mm -hmm. I definitely think that parents have to be strategic and vocal um, and not only when there's a problem, though, yeah. right? Like, they, and, and have it be a partnership because there's there there are a few things worse than only hearing from parents when there's a huge problem. problem. Yeah. And so it's like any relationship. If you, you know, I'm, tomorrow is my 21st wedding anniversary. Oh, so with my husband, if I just always went at him when there was a problem, or let's say when we were first together, yeah. if I started bringing up problems before we had any sort of foundation to our relationship established, we wouldn't be 21 years tomorrow. Facts. So you have to establish that relationship mm -hmm. with the adults in your child's community. And so spend time on the front end getting to know them. If there is an event, go to that event. Mm -hmm. Get to know the teachers. Get to know the administrators at your school and build that relationship so that then when there might be an occasion where something goes wrong, okay. they already know you. Yeah. They already trust you. They already respect you. And it, so it goes both ways, I think. Yeah. That is great advice to end with. We 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. This has been an amazing conversation. Yes. Of course. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I, I, I mean, I'm so glad that you all enjoyed our anti-racism plan and that you're proud of Harvard-Westlake. I think we have a long way to go. So I do not want anybody to think that I feel like we've we've got this. Yeah. You know, no. our kids are still hurting and it's really important that we continue to show up. And there's there's nothing to do right now other than do what we said we were going to do. Yeah. We we have to walk that walk right now. I think the plan is a good talking of the talk, but now we have to actually walk the walk. Thank you so much. You're we welcome. see you. We appreciate you. We, uh, you know, I just, I hope other schools will take note and follow your lead because it's definitely exemplary. Join us next Thursday and every Thursday for Erased. Thank you again, Janine, for joining us. Colette, always a pleasure. Pleasure is mine. <laughs> and thank you listeners for tuning in. Please check us out on Erased Podcast on Instagram and be sure to leave a review on Apple. Uh, those things do matter. We appreciate it. Erasedpodcast.com. Erasedpodcast.com is up. Yay. Info at erasedpodcast.com if you want to reach us. Ah, excellent. And thank you for joining us and helping to create a world in which we are no longer erased. erased. See you next week.